Welcome to Tequila Talks, the podcast that provides a comprehensive understanding of the world of finance and technology today. This show is brought to you by Nova Payment, a mission-critical financial and payments infrastructure provider. I'm Alex Johnson, and I'll be hosting the first episodes, where I'll be talking to industry leaders and delving into the business models of some of the most successful fintechs operating right now across the Americas. And I'm Nicole Kasperson, and I'll hear the human stories and insights behind the headlines that most people miss. Let's do this. You want to be top performer, you know, at least top 25% perform, top quarter. If you want to do that, you need to do things which are a little bit di- different than... But the problem is that if you are too much of a disruptor, especially if you're, if you're an early stage investor, nobody will follow on. In this business, you're as good as the next round. So you have to do things which are a little bit different, but not so much different that nobody will follow on. So because of that, PAM is very important. And the big checks are going to come from U.S. funds. So they have to look at a large tank. I am thrilled to be joined by the co-founder and managing partner at Ignea, a early stage investment and venture capital firm operating in both the U.S. and Mexico. Alvaro, thank you so much for joining me. No, thank you, Alex. Thanks for the invitation. Happy to join and uh, looking forward for a very engaging and interesting conversation. Absolutely. Well, that's uh, that's exactly what I'm hoping to do. So maybe we could start. Um, I gave you just the briefest of introductions when we first kicked off. But maybe you could start by giving the audience a little bit more of your own background, then a little bit more information on your firm as well. So I love the fact that you asked uh, of my background and not who I am. I'm in this, the middle of this life transition of trying to define myself by who I am, not by what I've done. <laughs> so I think uh, the differentiation is, is key. But since you asked about uh, what my background is, so I've been in, in venture capital for 16 years, as you mentioned, as co-founder of, of Ignea. I have a very strange upcoming into VC because before that I was in the corporate world. So it's strange to see people that come from the corporate world that go into VC. I was the typical corporate SOB. I was in the C-suite of uh, New York Stock Exchange and public traded companies for about 10 years. That was really my school of, for management, mm-hmm. but not my school for VC. Uh, everything I learned in the corporate world, I had to unlearn in order to, to do VC, uh, something that I learned the hard way. I thought I knew a lot and only to learn that I knew nothing about VC and and I had to unlearn everything I knew about, about business. So that's, I guess, the most relevant part about my background. In addition to, to being a, a VC fund manager, I currently am a member of the faculty at Harvard Business School. I teach entrepreneurship for second year MBAs at the, the Harvard Business School. Wow. Awesome. That's great. And I imagine that your work at Harvard probably feeds right into uh, your work as a VC, given that your focus in both cases is on entrepreneurship. Can you give us a little bit more uh, information on uh, Ignea for those who may, might not be familiar? So we are Mexico-based, mm-hmm. but uh, we we invest both globally. Mm-hmm. But in companies, 
that are going to either operate in, in Latin America or Mexico or going to come into the region. So that's our, our value add. The region is in a huge tech boom. We have the highest internet penetration in the world after uh, uh, Europe and the US, uh, 50% higher than Asia. Oh, wow. Um, our income per capita is the highest in emerging markets in the world. Mm-hmm. And we have one of the uh, youngest populations in the world. This has created a huge tech boom. Uh, so a lot of startups from outside of the region want to come into the region because of that. Uh, we invest the uh, early stage, uh, meaning uh, seed or series A. And uh, about 50% of our portfolio is in fintech, so we invest a lot in fintech. But um, you know there are other uh, sectors that we're excited about. So that's some about Ignia. And just kind of digging into that a little bit, I mean, I think one of the things that is really interesting about you and about the firm is that um, you guys were very early uh, in terms of sort of being a part of the VC tech ecosystem in Mexico. Can you uh, sort of characterize for us when you saw the opportunity there for that sort of tech boom that you were referencing and what some of those early years were like? Because I I feel like, and we're going to get into this later in the conversation, but you know, Mexico and Latin America more broadly are are pretty hot now in terms of kind of global interest in those markets. But in the early days, I'm guessing it wasn't quite like that. Yeah, no, it's uh, we didn't see the tech boom coming. We actually had no idea we were, what we were doing. Now, why did we get into this? Mainly because of romantic reasons. And of course, that romanticism uh, didn't do us a lot of good. Um, <laughs> but luckily, it got us into the sector. And and basically, all, you know, asking myself the question, who's going to build the world of tomorrow? Is it the large corporations of today mm-hmm. or the entrepreneurs of today? And the answer was clearly the entrepreneurs of the day. Mm-hmm. And uh, I wanted to be part of that story. And I thought, you know, I could be of help with two entrepreneurs. And, and that's why... And we got it very much inspired by the story of the largest microfinance institution in Americas, which is called Compartamos, which I didn't mention about this in my background, but uh, I've been very involved in the world of microfinance for the past 25 years, uh, mainly with Compartamos. I was chairman of the board of, of Compartamos. Today, Compartamos is a very large organization, about 25,000 employees. We serve about 4 million clients. But uh, in 2007, the year where, when uh, uh, Ignia was born, it was a, the Compartamos IPO. And uh, if you had invested when Compartamos raised money from VCs in 2000, by the time of the IPO in 2007, you would have multiplied your money by 250 times. Wow. So there are very few investments like that one. And it was a big aha moment that it's possible that it's possible to create significant value, and especially creating significant value by investing in businesses that serve the emerging middle class. So with that piece of evidence, with the romantic side, it motivated us to start Ignia, to start working with entrepreneurs. And just kind of drilling into fintech specifically, I mean, you said it was 
uh, about half your portfolio, right? What what was sort of the the early recognition uh, in 2007 or whatever it sort of hit that fintech should be a, a major area of focus for you? What what did you see as the opportunity there? We saw it until 2015. From 2007 to about 2015-16, it was a very long, treacherous desert. There was nobody to go invest with very few opportunities. So it was a very long, long industry. Now, we had been looking at, for example, wallets since the early days of, of Ignea. We had invested in, uh, in basically an online lender, which, by the way, we did horribly in it. Um, because <laughs> yes. Way too, way too early. But we really, I mean... Tech-enabled financial services wasn't really a thing until around 2015. And and what it really dawned on me was in a conversation that I had with the co-founders of Compartamos, where we basically asked ourselves the question that if Compartamos was born in 1990, and we said, if we were to found Compartamos today, would we use the same methodology, the same operational process, the same UX. And the three of us said, no, no, completely different. Easy. And that's when it really uh, dawned on me that we were in the cusp of a significant change or we were in an inflection point in financial service. And that's when when we really started to be uh, very aggressive in investing in, in fintech. I think that parallels a lot of the growth of fintech globally, right? I mean, as as you sort of highlighted, that desert or that winter is something that I think every sector goes through. But for fintech, it definitely seemed like it wasn't until 2015, 2016, where it just became sort of evident that, oh, there's there's a huge opportunity here. And I I guess one thing I'd like to, to dig into, obviously, I'm much less familiar with uh, sort of Latin America as a region overall, but I'm wondering if you can kind of characterize the challenges and opportunities for tech entrepreneurs in Mexico and in Latin America broadly, and how that sort of changed over the last few years, because obviously, we've seen a huge boom in VC funding flowing into the region. And I would imagine that that has both opened up a lot of opportunities, but also maybe introduced some challenges. So you can kind of, can you characterize for us sort of how that environment has changed as this sort of boom has happened? We are very early on in this game. We're actually the first VC fund in Mexico. And, and I mentioned that one of the challenges was that there was nobody to co-invest with. Sure. And what that means is you have too much ownership. And that's a problem. And we can get into that. Mm-hmm. And also it gives you very little diversification in your portfolio. And that's a problem because we are in against all odds business. 70% of the startups that are invested by VCs fail. Right. It's a high-risk business. Exactly. So you need diversification. One of the first big changes was more funds to co-invest with. Mm. And the moment that you can co-invest with more, you know, you have an ownership which makes much more sense. You can diversify more. And also, two heads think better than one around the table. The interaction with the with entrepreneur is much better when there is a few of us around the table, et cetera, et cetera. It also brings other challenges. It's not 
is not uh, as rosy as it might sound, but but it's much better to call west. Then the other thing that happened was was a generational change. Mm. So my generation in Latin America, we grew up with constant crisis. So we don't have a great belief that things are, that a brighter future is possible. The generation below my generation they grew up in much better environment. So they're much more optimistic about the future. And when you're more, more optimistic about the future, it's the number one characteristic that you need to be an entrepreneur. So people that they, they believe that they can. So the second, the big generation change up. And so more entrepreneurs started to, to think about their own opportunities. Third, it, the ecosystem started to build around us. And that's a fundamental element for their and, and ecosystems means just, of course, funds, investing, but just services, right? I mean, when we started IGNIA, there wasn't a single auditor that wanted to audit us because they had no idea about what VC is, right? So they need auditors, lawyers, accountants that know what entrepreneurship is, how to look at start, a startup. And you also need a, an environment where talent finds it attractive to live in. You know, just it's, it's a place that is engaging, that is fun, that, that you, you, know, you have something interesting to do. There are other people that you can meet that are uh, also enriching, right? So that, that started to happen in the early, you know, in 2012, 13, 14. Then 2019 was a huge inflection point. And today we can say a lot about things about SoftBank, but they created a huge inflection point for Latin America because they came in with an announcement of $5 billion fund for LATAM, which at the time was, I mean, it, it's, it's shocking. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you can't even describe how shocking it, is. it was. And that turned the attention of many international funds into Latin America, right? Oh, wow. There's something happened. And the moment they, they went in to see what was happening, they saw that there was a lot of things that were interesting. Mm-hmm. Incredible entrepreneurs, immense markets, immense opportunities, and there's some immense opportunities for many reasons, but one of them, because the incumbents were asleep at the wheel. Mm. So this brought in further funding, which created a very positive dynamic. Now, we can talk about why SoftBank did, did this, which... It's very much related of why there isn't enough funding into Latin America still. Sure. But there were some specific circumstances because of that. Got it. Got it. Well, I'd love to get into that, right? And I I think a couple of things you said that were interesting to me. One that I just want to circle back on first, uh, because I just sort of caught my ear, is the value of ownership being a bit more distributed inside of these companies, right? Um, So you sort of talked about the fact that one of the benefits of Having co-investors is that um, it's not just one owner with sort of a concentrated stake in the company. I, I'd be curious to get a little bit more detail from you on why you think that's beneficial, because I think that um, there's obviously lots of different versions of sort of philosophies in VC, 
uh, the value of diversification is, is I think, a, a fairly straightforward idea. But I also do definitely hear a lot about VCs that want to double and triple down and that do want to have kind of a concentrated ownership stake, at least in some companies that they're very enthusiastic about. Can you sort of talk about almost from like the company and entrepreneur perspective, and you teach entrepreneurship at Harvard Business School, so I'm sure you, this conversation comes up a lot. What's the benefit to the entrepreneur and to the startup of having a more diversified ownership and cap table? Well, one of them is, as I said, from the side of the of the fund, you can diversify more. You know, right? You can you have a fixed pool of capital. Mm-hmm. If you can co-invest, you can maybe distribute it among 20, 30 companies. If you can't, then you have to distribute it in less companies. Mm-hmm. Second, and 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 very important is. As a fund manager, you have to be involved, but you have to always maintain certain distance to stay objective. Mm-hmm. When you have too much ownership, the line of you being in, in the kitchen is very blurry. And when you are too much inside of the kitchen and participating in how the sausages is made, are made, yeah. Yeah. You, you lose that that perspective, you lose that objectivity. And the biggest mistakes you make in VC is not in the first check you make. The biggest mistake is in the second check that you make, in the follow-up. And if you if you lose that objectivity, it's very difficult to say no to that second check. And you have to stay objective. And also, when you are too involved and you have too much ownership, you turned entrepreneur from an entrepreneur into an employee. Yeah. And that's a huge mistake because the conversation, it's very dif- different when you're having conversation and you have a, a relatively low stake when the entrepreneur comes to you with an issue. And by the way, there's one cert- there's only one certainty in this business. And that certainty is that there's going to be problems. Everything else is a question mark. So when the entrepreneur comes and says, hey, I have this problem, and it's very different when you have a low low ownership to say, well, this is how I would do it, than when you say the same when you have when you have a large ownership. It, when you have a large ownership, it almost sounds like an instruction. Yeah. It's a, you're saying the same thing each time, but when you have a large ownership stake, it's like, you will do this because I'm your boss, is the way it comes across. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And then the accountability goes out the window. Mm-hmm. And that's a huge problem. Uh, because when, if this in, it doesn't work well, the entrepreneur comes to you and says, well, this is what you told me we should do. Mm-hmm. Right. 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 So then, then, then you are, you are completely inside of the kitchen and making the sausages. Right. And that's mm-hmm. a huge problem. That is, mm-hmm. that's a huge problem. So there's are some of the reasons why having a large ownership is not right, which goes, which goes very much against. You said a lot of Latin American investors, sure, goes very much against a lot of what many Latin American investors think is, oh, I got a great deal. I invest in a very low valuation, and that is completely the wrong approach. And by the way, I learned that the hard way. When you dilute the entrepreneur too too much, they are not in, in you know very, very much engaged. And this business is not be, not done because you, especially in the early stage, it's not done because you invest at a 
attractive valuation. You provide returns to your investors because the team, the entrepreneurs and his team, with your support, creates value, right? Mm-hmm. It's two completely different things. So a lot of a lot of the thinking in Latin America is to try to buy cheap. Mm-hmm. And that is just the wrong approach. It kind of gets me to another thing I wanted to circle back on, which is just the way you've been sort of characterizing growth in VC investment in this market, which is obviously sort of non-existent when you come in, uh, really challenged by the fact that there aren't a lot of companies to co-invest. As you said, the sort of ecosystem with lawyers and accountants and auditors and second-time entrepreneurs, like all of that is just very much in its infancy. Then it starts to grow. Obviously, 2019 is an inflection point with the big amount of money that SoftBank commits. I think where I sort of sensed you going with that was that 2019 was an inflection point, but it wasn't just a, okay, 2019 passed and now everything is up and to the right, right? I mean, I think we've seen globally a bit of a slowdown in uh, VC investments. I know a lot of VC firms are sort of struggling a little bit to get you know, additional funds from LPs as SoftBank has ramped down in certain areas as well. So can you kind of talk about the, I guess, almost kind of the lumpiness of VC interest, uh, particularly in, in Mexico over the last, you know, say five years and kind of where we're at today? Because it doesn't seem like it's just consistently all going in one direction. There's been a little lumpiness along the way, right? I mean, just one branch is on, on a phrase that you made, which is additional funds for LPs that, that, and some funds are having trouble raising. Sure. That's just at the denominator effect, okay? Yeah, sure. Uh, so it's not so much about how much people think about the future is just at the denominator effect, but that's a mm-hmm. different subject. Mm-hmm. Now, yes, I mean, the, the trend in uh, VC funding and, and investment into, into startups in Latin America has followed the trend globally, right? Sure. Which, you know, 2021, an all-time high, 2022 coming down from that all-time high by, on, you know, about 60 to 70%. And then this year, that trend continued to go down, right? Now, Latin America has seen a, a little bit of a further decrease in this year than other regions mm-hmm. because a lot of the funds from out... And by the way, this push was brought by funds from outside of the region, mainly mainly from outside of the region. Yeah. And most of these funds just... This was just because part of the hype, they were following a trend. But with all due respect to them, with very little understanding of the, of the region. Sure. So the reason why SoftBank happened, on top of the fact that there was a huge opportunity in Latin America, was because there was a principle in that fund that understood the region. Mm. Recently, I've been doing quite a bit of, uh, spending quite a bit of time uh, in India and, and studying the India case. Why is this, the funding from US funds into India, I mean, orders of magnitude in a relative basis than to Latin America, right? Forget it on, on dollar to dollar, on a relative basis. A relative basis is it's about five times. So why is that? When you look at the composition of GPs of U.S. funds, there is 
not minor percentage of Indians as GPs. Yeah. Now try and look at how many Latin Americans are our GPs in those funds. Basically ne- negligible. Yeah. So you have these Indians that are GPs in US funds that have a, a thorough and deep understanding of, Igni- of India. Right. And basically what that means, following what we said earlier, that this is a business of against all odds, assessing risk is a fundamental element. Yeah in this business. So when you don't have a deep understanding, it's very difficult to assess those. Mm-hmm. And when you then have GPs in the, in the US that have a, a deep and fundamental understanding of this region, it's very difficult for them to invest. So what happened with SoftBank was, was that there was somebody that knew the region, that came from the region, that understood that. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, that has not been replicated very much. And that's why it's, in Latin America, we call it Capital Golondrino, which is basically capital that comes and goes very easily. Sure, sure. Uh, You're just there for the short-term opportunity. You don't have a deep conviction about the region. And basically, it's lack of knowledge. Yeah. And, and, And look, I'm not questioning their capacity, their intelligence, their knowledge about VC. I mean, they're incredible investors, mm-hmm. but in order to, to invest well, you need to understand deeply the local context. Yeah. And it's very difficult to know the not local context, which you're somebody that takes a plane into the region, you know, even once a month. Right. So that's a little bit. Obviously, there has been some success stories, like Nubank, mm-hmm. which has raised their attention, right? So, sure. well, you know. Wait a second. I mean, there's something going on here. Yeah. So there is much better traction than before 2019 because of those success stories, because some people have come in, have gotten some understanding, have seen some of the successes. There are funds like QED that don't, don't come to the region from the region, but have devoted significant amount of resources. They have people on the ground. So those are funds that have across the other side. And aside, aside from them, who from the U.S. has stationed a team in the region? Uh, that's absolutely right. I mean, I, I know of multiple ones that sort of expanded. Uh, no one can see my fingers, but I'm doing the in quotes as I say that, into Latin America, into different um, sort of countries within the region, like you're saying, 2019, 2020, certainly 2021, but most of them have pulled back from it, right? And it kind of, I think, illustrates what you're saying, which is if your decision to go into Latin America was based on sort of following trends and following what other people were doing and observing sort of big success stories that everybody knew about, like Nubank, that wasn't a solid foundation to keep you there when the tide ran back out, right? Which always happens. This is a cyclical business and you know, there's always going to be times when sort of the money is pouring in, then when it's not quite as much. And that conviction is sort of what keeps you in the places that you're in and does seem like that was sort of lacking at a lot of these different firms. So I'd love to maybe dig into that a little bit more, right? I mean, as you're saying, particularly for early stage VC investing, what I found is that um, while a lot of times we dress things up and like, you know, here's the target addressable market. This is the size of the opportunity. This is all of this sort of quantitative research we've done on this company and this market. 
a lot of it at the end of the day kind of comes back to like gut feel, right? And like, I know this market, I'm from this market, my family lives here, my friends have this exact problem. And this is why you see, I think even in like the US, a lot of VC investment flows into companies and founders and problems that look a lot like the VCs themselves, right? And are similar to their experiences because that's what they can really de-risk and wrap their heads around. So yeah, I guess sort of put us in your shoes when you're looking at Mexico specifically. Can you talk us through what are some of the the sort of dynamics in the market that you look for that have been sort of driving factors in the investments you've made? And this podcast is sort of specifically about fintech. So like when you put your fintech hat on, is it sort of the underbanked population? Is it sort of, as you were saying, sleepy, antiquated incumbents? Is it sort of regulatory changes? Is it changes in consumer behavior, either demographically or as a result of the pandemic? Like, kind of talk us through what are some of the high points? Obviously, we'll never have your depth of understanding of the market, but give us a, a peek behind the curtain. The fundamentals that were there in 2019, they are no different today. Yeah, right? still true. Right. So, those fundamentals were there, they are still today. You mentioned one which is uh, very important, is the change in consumer behavior with the pandemic. That is a fundamental trend that did was, the, the trend wasn't changed, it was accelerated. Mm-hmm. Now, a lot of us, a lot of us think, you know, that the, the technology, we said that it started in 2015, that's when the trend on fintech, and we tend to say that it's the technology, right? It's not the technology. It's that this thing became an extension of ourselves. And even when you leave your phone at home, you feel like you've, you, you, yeah, you, you're missing a hand basically. Yeah. You're missing a hand. So it's become, it became an extension of ourselves. And because it became an extension of ourselves, the level of trust to interact and make transactions here went up. Transactions that you can do today here, you could do them 20 years ago on a phone. Sure. And that hasn't changed. So that, that trend did it get accelerated. Then obviously things which I mentioned that were fundamentals since 2019, like internet penetration, very young, young population, very affluent, those hasn't changed. Now, you mentioned something that the opportunity under, in the underbank. I think that opportunity has been oversold for fintech. That that wouldn't surprise me at all. And I'd love for you to comment on that, actually, because one of the things, like we talk about even the US, which is absurd because our rate of truly underbanked households in the US is incredibly small. But I feel like that's a, that's a trap that particularly people outside of emerging markets fall into assuming like, oh, this is a huge thing or this is like the thrust of the opportunity. So, so please dig into that. There are a couple of things which are important. One is I, I love... You know, I always push my team when they say, oh, there's a, there's, it's an un, underpenetrated market. Yeah. Therefore, there's a huge opportunity. Yeah. Uh, and by the way, ChatGDP falls for that one. Whenever you, <laughs> you throw into ChatGDP any opportunity that has a blue ocean because it's an underpenetrated market, you will go for that opportunity. Hmm. But I always say, okay, then there is a huge opportunity for beef consumption in India. Sure. Sure. It's totally, it's an, it's an underpenetrated market. It's a tremendously underpenetrated market. So the, and well, maybe people don't want to consume it. Maybe, maybe a good reason for that. Yeah. Right. So that's one, one reason. So be careful with that. 
You see? And the other part is the unit economics. Mm. You can have a very profitable business serving the underbank, going right. back to Compartamos, very profitable bank, uh, serving the underbank. Mm -hmm. But basically, it needs to include credit. Yeah. Very difficult to have positive economics serving the other bank, underbank if you don't include credit. Now, Providing loan, loans to under underbank, that is very challenging. Yeah. So, you know, it's also, you know, take it with a grain of salt. So, you know, those are my overarching thoughts about the fintech opportunity in underbank. Mm -hmm. We talked about Nubank as the biggest opportunity and the big headline of well, there's something going on, et cetera, et cetera. Let's not forget that Nubank did not start with the underbank. That's right. Nubank started with the top segment of the socioeconomic pyramid. And trying to take those away from incumbent banks. Right, exactly. So uh, so even, even our most uh, biggest success case didn't start with underbank, underbank. And then there's no question that one of the big opportunities with FinTech is that, as we've mentioned, the traditional banks are still Slipping at the wheel. Mm. There's a firm which I think they do incredible work. Its name is Delos Advisors, that they advise financial services companies. And they just wrote a piece literally last week that is called The Emperor with No Clothes. Oh, wow. And referring exactly to the income of I mean, just what a horrible job they do. And by the way, when you look at two numbers, it explains why why Nubank was successful. With all the merit of how well they've, they've executed. I mean, David Belles is literally out of this world uh, individual and professional and entrepreneur. And But MPS, banks in Latin America, 25 points. Mm. And Nubank, 90 points. That's a big difference. And cost of serving clients, 85% below traditional banks. Yeah, yeah. That's a that's a bad flip-flop, yeah. When you have somebody that their customers are way more happier than with you and their cost to serve them is 75% uh, less, you have a problem. Yeah. So definitely traditional banks are very much sleep as they will. But they continue to be incredibly profitable. Sure. So why change? Yeah, I mean, it's a classic innovator's dilemma, yeah. So is it going to ever happen? I don't know. But um, mm -hmm. but that has... The, the fintech opportunity in the in the Latin America would not have happened if the banks were not asleep at the wheel. And by the way, it would not have happened in the U.S. I mean, no, yeah. went for Chase uh, clients, mm -hmm. you know, Shine the same, right? And uh, Stripe existed. Because they were asleep at the wheel in terms of providing a good solution for payments online. I mean, for God's sake, I mean, the, the ones that have been in the payment business forever, they should have been the ones that provide a good experience on payments online, but they didn't. So it was also in other regions that the incumbents were asleep at the wheel. The reason why the fintech opportunity existed and continues to exist. I've always thought it was a combination of exactly what you're saying, right? Which is, it's a very profitable business when done well. I mean, we don't, in financial services, we don't manufacture anything, right? And so like our costs 
generally are very low. Obviously, if you build branches and have massive call centers, your costs go up, but like it's a very profitable business. It's very highly regulated, right? Which I think tends to encourage a certain slowness and a certain uh, lethargy. And then you just sort of have your traditional uh, challenges of incumbency, which Innovator's Dilemma tells you that um, you're going to have those exact issues. So no, that I think that's spot on with what we've seen in the US and other regions as well. So pretend for a moment that I'm uh, a student in your class and we're talking entrepreneurship and I'm, you know, maybe wanting to start a fintech company in Mexico. What would you advise me to do in terms of like, what are the characteristics that you really look for when you're evaluating these early stage companies? In particular, are there any key factors that you see entrepreneurs or founders maybe not thinking enough about in terms of how they start to build their business and, and what investors look for? So first of all, if you were a student of mine, I would tell you, go and work for a startup. Sure. And have somebody else pay for your own mistakes. <laughs> right. And then become a founder, right? Yeah. And, and by the way, I underline the fact of go and work for a startup. Right. And because there are certain lessons that you learn in a startup that you don't, you don't learn at a large corporation, right? Right. I mean, we can talk about those if you want, but uh, what are the lessons that you learn in a startup and not in a, in a large corporation? Now, the things that I, uh, that I look for, obviously, if, if we, don't, we don't invest pre-seed, right? Right. And we invest either seed or, or series A, at which point you really have to show, show some traction. You can do all the market studies in the world, and we can sit down and think about why this is a great opportunity, but you have to show some traction, which is the, the answer to, is there demand for this product? Mm -hmm. uh, now, we don't invest in things that will create demand. When the iPhone came out, there wasn't demand for this, right? They created the demand. You see. So there are very successful businesses that create demand. Uh, we don't invest in those. So you have to show some traction. And traction gives you, is there demand for it? Are you solving a pain point? And if your go-to-market is being successful, which is related to also unit economics, right? And obviously, your go-to-market drives a lot of your unit economics, but we have to see either good unit economics or a path to good unit economics, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and the path to good unit economics is, do you have to boil the ocean in order for these unit economics to be good? Well, my friend, then not interesting. Well, it turns out that the levers that you have to pull in order to turn these unit economics into attractive ones, no question. Uh, earlier you talked about the uh, TAM, right? The total addressable market, this is a large market, et cetera, et cetera. That's a tricky subject. U.S. investors always look for TAM, for <laughs> right? Sure. And that is obviously, obviously very interesting. And you also have to obviously look very closely at what, how you calculate that TAM. Mm -hmm. But there are also very good businesses that become leaders in an industry where there is not a very large TAM. And because they are leaders in a, in a not a very large TAM, that there is not a space to more than two or three pillars, you have somewhat olig oligopolistic powers, you can be very profitable. We tend to follow the large TAM model because there's a, there's a big trap in this business. 
One of the big contradictions in this business is you want to be a top performer. Because if you're an average performer in VC, you basically produce the same returns as is investing in the S&P. Why go through all this trouble, lack of liquidity to just get S&P returns, right? Right. Makes sense. So you want to be top performer, you know, at least top 25% perform, top quarter. If you want to do that, you need to do things which are a little bit different than but the problem is that if you are too much of a disruptor, especially if you're, if you're an early stage investor, nobody will follow on. In this business, you're as good as the next round. So you have to do things which are a little bit different, but not so much different that nobody will follow on. So because of that, time is very important. And the big checks are going to come from U.S. funds. So they have to look at a large tank. And that's why we, we have to, even though my fundamental belief is that it's not necessarily true for, to look for a large TAM, my practical self says you have to look at a large TAM in order to attract those big checks down the line. Got it. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And I appreciate you spelling out sort of the difference between the sort of idealist way of looking at it versus the practical considerations. Because yeah, as you say, you're only... Only as good as the next next check that's going to come down the pike. Um, I guess sort of looking into the future a bit, I wanted to wrap up by asking you to uh, sort of get out your crystal ball for a minute. If you look at sort of where fintech is heading in Latin America broadly and Mexico specifically over the next, like, say, five to 10 years, are there any particular segments, um, payments, insurtech, I, I don't know, crypto that you see is better positioned for growth or uh, like what are some of the major trends you're looking at? So a few ones, you mentioned payments in, 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 in Paytech, there's still a huge opportunity. Mm. Just because cash is incredibly inconvenient. Sure. It's very convenient for people that do it for the wrong reasons. <laughs> right. But, um, but it's very inconvenient. And the penetration of... Uh, of payments, uh, of, of detailed payments in Latin America is still quite low. Uh, in, the, in, the Bra- in Brazil, for example, it's gone up significantly because of PICS, but that hasn't caught on in the rest of Latin America now. So that's almost in consumer uh, payments. But in B2B, B2B payments, there's also a huge opportunity. I mean, the payment solutions for B2B is still quite bad in Latin America. Mm-hmm. And related to B2B payments, uh, cross-border payments, the experience for cross-border payments, it's becoming horrible. There's an interesting trend. B2B cross-border payments is going up. Mm -hmm. Service providers that provide that type of service is going down. Now, why is that? Well, it turns out that the regulatory processes that you have to go through in order to do cross-border payments is quite significant, and rightly so, for you know, KYC reasons, ML reasons, uh, money laundering reasons, etc. But today, most incumbents have tried to solve that problem manually because they are very bad at tech, and it's a problem that can be solved with tech. Yep. Right. So there's a huge opportunity to bring tech solutions there, because 
cross border payments are only continue to go are going to continue to go up. I can assure you that, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so in cross border payments, there's a huge opportunity. B two B marketplaces, when India and China, they've been very prevalent, and partly because of funding, as we were saying earlier. But there are the opportunities there. Now related to to fintech. Every successful B2B marketplace, especially in the second B, if it's an SME, financing is involved. Or even in the other Bs, is if it's SME to large or large to SME, there is financing involved, which is the first hook. And that's how you see marketplaces being born and you know, out of Alibaba and Financial came out, which is the one of the largest financial institutions in the world, right? So Related to fintech, there's a lot of opportunity there. There, you mentioned uh, insurtech. I would make one characteristic, which is there's a huge opportunity in, in an embedded insurtech. Sure. So and I know people talk about embedded finance, which is a big topic, but I don't believe in insurtech by its own. It has to be embedded with another service. I'm not saying financial service, another service. So there's a big opportunity in embedded insurtech and have a very good UX, etc. You mentioned crypto, and obviously crypto is going through a long winter right now, but I think there's a huge opportunity in DeFi. Mm-hmm. Now, DeFi has now been captured by a lot of people that are in the crypto space because crypto has become a bad word. And DeFi, by the essential definition of DeFi, which is lending and bearing through smart contracts. Yeah. Now, why do I believe there's an opportunity there? Because today, from the $1 that I deposit in the bank, mm-hmm. that dollar creates revenue, which is basically interest from a lo- loan that they provide from that dollar, right? So how much of the revenue that is produced by that dollar that I deposit does the depositor get? Sure. So on average, it gets about 20%, give or take. So my dollar produced another dollar in revenue. Out of the, that dollar, I get 20 cents. Yeah. In DeFi, it's 90 cents. Mm. So that huge difference, it creates a huge opportunity for this intermediation, and there's a huge opportunity there. And obviously, in order for to have DeFi, you need to have crypto, mostly stable coins, but may, mainly because of the smart contracts embedded in there. Got it. And then the last part where I think there's a huge opportunity is financial services for freelancers. Today, mm. B2C fintech, it's out of vogue, mainly because investors are kind of burned because of all the money that they poured in in the last few years. And very only 5% of the startups that did B2C fintech were successful. So people are a little bit like, whoa. I still think that there are some huge opportunities in B2C specifically in financial services to freelancers. Awesome. Awesome. Well, we could uh, spend another three hours unpacking each of those areas. And for those listening, particularly if you're building in um, Mexico or in Latin America, or you have interest in that market, I'm sure uh, Alvaro would be more than happy to follow up with you and talk to you. But um, that is all the time we have. Alvaro, thank you so much for joining me uh, on today's podcast. This was super illuminating and I really appreciate it. Why not, Alex? All the opposite. I'm more than glad. Uh, I'm very, very appreciative and thankful for your invitation. And always love to have engaging and interesting conversations 
So uh, thank you very, very much. Fantastic. We'll have to do it again sometime. Uh, really appreciate it. Great. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed the show, why not pass it on to a friend you think would enjoy it too? And be sure to rate us five stars wherever you listen. This episode was brought to you by Nova Payment, a mission-critical financial and payments infrastructure provider. So you don't miss any more fintech stories. Subscribe today wherever you get your podcasts.